0: Welcome to an exciting first edition of NAHB Power Hitters. I'm your host, Michael Thomas. Here to speak with Jim Tobin. Jim Tobin is the Executive Vice President and the Chief Lobbyist for NAHB, National Association of Home Builders, a very important and powerful group that does a lot for home builders nationally. We're so excited and pleased to have him here today. And with that, Jim, thanks for being here. If you could just Tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to NAHB, and uh, we'll get things started.
1: Well, thanks for having me, boy. When you when you say it out loud, it sounds much more exciting than it really is. Uh, but uh, but well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here on uh, on the first uh, the first run. Uh, so, yeah, simply, I've been in HB almost twenty two years. Coming up uh, in, in another another month or two here. Uh, and, and really started like a lot of people do in Washington, D.C. I worked on Capitol Hill, originally from Connecticut, and I worked for my home home, uh, home district congressman, moved down to Washington, D.C. in 1995, and worked for a couple of members. Uh, lost elections, won elections, uh, and then and then finally got, got tired of, uh, of, of seeing what happens every two years uh, at election time, and was fortunate enough to, uh, to land a spot at NHB as a, as a line lobbyist, uh, where I was uh, kind of a inch deep and a mile wide and, and, and did a lot of the a lot of the west coast offices in the western part of uh, the congressional delegations uh the western part of the country and then eventually worked my way up uh through to to do environmental policy for uh, for the builders uh did tax policy and right? until the uh, the point where i moved into uh more of the 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 big chair where i'm i'm, I'm now head of uh the, the three important three important functions of our government affairs team which is the federal lobbying team, our pack, our our political action committee, as well as our state and local lobbying operation as well. So uh, I'm one one part of the big cog, or I'm one cog of the big big NHB advocacy machine and, and work very closely with my regulatory public affairs and legal counterparts.
0: That's great. That's uh, quite the background. And I'm sure with all that time in Washington, you are familiar with regulatory burdens. (laughs) I know that can be one of the key things that builders face as a challenge, that and uh, creating housing affordability. I know those are two uh, initiatives near and dear to the hearts there of NAHB, um, reading on your blueprint. So I was just curious from that perspective in particular, if there were any items either with housing affordability or getting over some of these regulatory burdens that you feel like are more achievable or maybe more on a fast track to uh, get that in front of Washington and make some some changes that could really help deliver more affordable housing?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's been an interesting time. As like I say, you know, in my 20, 22 years at NHB, housing affordability is always paramount. And and the regulatory burdens uh, on the home building sector, heck, we're, we're one of, if not the most regulated industry in the in the country. Uh, and that—that's at both the, the the local, state, and the federal level. Uh, the layer of regulations really do impact the cost of housing across the board for our customers, and the cost of multifamily development as well. In—in in fact, the NHB did a study a couple of years ago. Almost 25 percent of the cost of a single-family unit and a full 33 percent of the cost of a of a rental unit are directly attributable to regulations at the at the local, state, and federal level. So for us. If we're going to talk about the affordability equation in this in this country, we know that housing affordability is virtually at an all-time low. And, and whether it's rural, suburban, or urban markets, housing affordability is a real a real issue. And trying to get more and more Americans uh, to, to take advantage of, of, of ownership opportunities or to take advantage of rental opportunities in places where they want to live, work, and and play ultimately. That's been our mission at NHB. And when you look at those 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 affordability numbers and the, and the cost burdens from regulation, we've got to tackle the regulation uh, equation. And you know where I where I play in uh, is at the federal level, obviously, whether it's through lobbying Capitol Hill or more importantly the administration in this uh, in, in this time to try to get them to take a look at uh, the regulatory burdens that are on the industry. And then and then you have to take a look at those local and state regulations as well. It's really important for the federal government to be a partner. For the local governments, where land use is really dictated and those costs really escalate, uh, to make sure the federal government is doing the right thing, not only lowering its own regulations, but trying to be a partner and give best practices or encouragement to local local governments to do the right thing by regulation as well.
0: That's yeah, that's that's a key issue for sure. And it sounds like from what you're talking about at the federal level, you know, you're doing your lobbying, but then also at the state, municipal levels, that's also very important. Give us for us, us novices to government affairs and, and how this all kind of trickles down. Like, how does that work? Because at the federal level, you've got certain things. For example, in the city of Aurora, where I was sitting on the citizens advisory board as a voting member for a couple years, you know, tap fees in that city for any multifamily development might be $40,000 per unit. I mean, how how does be, um work with the national and then the local to try and get them together to help reduce some of these costs and burdens?
1: Well, I, I think I'll take the, 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 national, the national first. I think what, we, what we've seen, we, we've made housing affordability and, and the regulatory burdens a, a, a key focus of, uh, of our efforts over the last couple of years, all years, but, but over the last couple of years in particular. Uh, and, and I will say that this administration ha- has, has responded just a year ago this past June uh, the president signed an executive order uh, looking at housing affordability and 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 the regulatory impacts uh, on on housing affordability. And we're actually eagerly anticipating the report as a result of that executive order. Uh, Secretary Carson at HUD has headed up a uh, a multi-jurisdictional or most multi-administration uh, effort uh, to come up with that report. We, we, that report is now over at the White House, so we're hopeful. Uh, that we'll see that released uh, publicly in the next couple of months. uh, That's going to give a a roadmap for the the kind of regulations that we want to see go away because they're duplicative or are no longer uh, relevant. But more importantly, are there ways, uh, and this is the nexus you're talking about, are there ways for the federal government who doesn't have, and we we certainly don't want the federal government having direct control over local land use decisions, but is there a way for grants to be given to localities if they do the right thing by housing, whether it's you know, master planning, whether it's making sure that the transportation needs uh, accentuate uh, and complement uh, the areas of growth in communities? Are there ways that we can find the lower impact fees uh, that we can, we can talk about inclusionary zoning in the right way? Uh, what are the ways the federal government can play a role in giving transportation dollars to, to, to counties or cities that are, again, doing the right thing. And I think that's where really the federal government has its biggest role. Uh, think of it more as a carrot approach rather than a stick approach.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, one thing I've seen be a difference maker for affordable housing developers seems to be that nonprofit status and partnership, which can lead them to either some form of tax abatement, or frankly, maybe they're not really paying property taxes at all, and as you know, in affordable housing development, every penny counts. So that's one way I've seen that work. But you know, clearly, you can't say to everybody, everybody needs a nonprofit or a nonprofit partner now to make this work.
1: Yeah, and, and we have to, and we have to change the, the 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 way we talk about housing and housing affordability. Too often times, housing affordability uh, it gets gets flipped on its head And we talk about affordable housing. We talk about subsidized housing, whether it's Section Eight the low-income housing tax credit, about working with nonprofits in particular. And, and sometimes what happens, we we run into NIMBY's uh, who don't want those kind of developments in, in, in their towns. We need, we need affordable housing across the board for the for the low end of the spectrum. But we really need what we need to talk about when we talk about housing affordability, it's workforce housing. We need to find a place, uh, whether it's apartments or how, or, or or ownership, where people who want to live and work in the communities they serve. Yes, we want to talk about first responders, our healthcare professionals, our, our firefighters, our teachers, our police, the, the people who serve our community. We want to make sure they have safe housing in the communities that they serve. But we're also talking about restaurant workers and retail workers. Think about the people who've been so hit by the COVID crisis right now. That's who we need to focus on. And if we can drive down the cost of housing, that's who we're going to take care of. And, and, and again, It's really important how we talk about it. It's it's housing affordability for everybody. Uh, Mm -hmm. The top end of the market will take care of itself, but we've got to talk about that that meaty middle of people who really need housing choice in this country, and they really need to find a way uh, to be able to afford, whether it's a down payment or it's making monthly rents. Those are the people that are most affected, certainly by the COVID crisis, but certainly the ones squeezed by the the, the, the inability to produce an, an affordable unit.
0: That's great to hear. And that's something that I, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about, too, with workforce housing development being so critical. Are there any proposals NHB has regarding, uh, again, like you were mentioning, some form of, uh, of a carrot, I guess, to, to help developers along those lines? Um, you know, one example is, I mean, if you are serving, let's call it, you know, sort of middle income range there as you know there's not a tax credit to do that per se or you're not going to get home funds or cdbg funds to develop that type of extremely needed housing are there any proposals or thoughts on how what kind of carrot or what
1: that carrot might look like so i'll give you a great example uh financial services Chairwoman maxine waters she has a proposal that would actually create a, an add-on to the cdbg pie a pot of money again not taking away from the, 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 the big pot of money that CDBG is, but a kind of a, a bubble, if you will, uh, that would allow localities to tap that extra money if they do the right thing by housing regulations, reducing burdens on the construction of, of housing, uh, looking at impact fees in, 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 a, in a better way than I think some people, some localities using kind of in a ham-handed way that really do drive up the cost of housing, but smarter housing policies, whether it's transit oriented or whether it's, it's surface and, and roads oriented but, but looking at it holistically and rewarding those communities that are trying to do the right things uh by by, by housing regulation and driving housing prices down so that that's one example uh that, that we're supportive of um we're, we're also working with the administration constantly they, they this administration has rolled back a lot of regulations over it's, its three and a half years in office and again, we're waiting for that report to to shine its light on more. But you know, from one, I'll give you a really big one that the NHP has been pushing. Up. That's the Waters of the U.S. A, a, a huge uh, permitting program that is managed by the federal government uh, that any land developer has to go through in order to uh, get a federal permit to develop a piece of property, whether it's single-family or multifamily, uh, and mitigate if they are impacting wetlands. Uh, but but that rule was was rewritten earlier this year by the Trump administration to make it easier for developers. Look at a piece of property, and find and, and be able to easily see what wetlands are on there, what they have to mitigate for, or if there are no wetlands, and, and move forward. It, it, time is money when it comes to development, and if we can reduce the permitting times and we can reduce the the, the, the time the time it takes to get a permit from the federal government or even state and local governments, you're going to drive down the cost of housing. So those are a couple examples of of, like, of really good policies that. From both ends of the political spectrum whether it's the trump administration or, or maxine waters they really are thinking about housing affordability in a different way.
0: yeah no that's great to hear those are a couple key target things you really just hit on when you mentioned wetlands for me kind of an interesting segue um my background is a commercial commercial lending at banks and i've been a hud lender now for about five years and okay. when i came over my chief underwriter asked me one time well how when you were at banks how did you deal with um you know, endangered species on your on your properties. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, there's no there's no similarity between a lot of the government insured programs, specifically with HUD, compared to conventional financing. And that's kind of something I wanted to just see if NAHB had even looked at or, or talked about. Just a quick example. The 221 D4, which is uh, HUD's program for new construction and permanent financing, it's at an all time low right now, interest rates dip below 3%, they're 2.95% fixed for 40 years. I mean, that's lower than a single family mortgage rate, and these could be $50 million construction loans. And in a cost constrained loan, which many of these are, you're looking at 85% leverage, where at a bank, even in a very strong market. You're at 65 to 70% today, so it's less equity. It's the lowest interest rate. It's the longest fixed term. But here's the catch. You have to meet Davis-Bacon wage requirements because of an archaic Department of Labor rule that goes back to the 1930s. We're the only lender in the, in the, on the planet that I'm aware of that requires this. And it really is one of those detrimental factors, even though in many markets like Colorado um, were cost constrained and so labor constrained. So, you know, you're not really paying people less. It's just a matter of going through the burden of, of Davis Bacon wages, wage reporting and all that. Sometimes with all the things developers have to deal with, it's just one more hurdle and they're like, look, you know what, I just I just don't want to deal with that. So have you all looked at, you know, trying to facilitate ways to make more attractive financing government options like that more available and, and, and less burdensome?
1: Yeah, anything we can do to, to get the federal government out of the way. Right. And, to, and I think we certainly have an opportunity with this administration to do just that, get the government out of the way of business and, 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 and what role the government needs to play, you know, HUD needs to play great, uh, but let's not make it overly burdensome. And, and, and I, I do want to address the, 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 the split wage issue. That is something we have been working on with this administration for you know, three and a half years now. And I think we're very close to resolving that issue. We, we've gotten HUD. Uh, to to, uh, to to petition DOL uh, to to make a change and go back to the way it was uh, you know, several years ago. Uh, we've gotten DOL now to agree to that change, uh, and and it now sitting at the White House. In fact, two weeks ago, I was on a call with the White House uh, with the domestic policy team, uh, who, who kind of has to give the final blessing to that, explaining the issue to them uh, and and encouraging them if they if they if they really want to keep housing going right now, and housing is really the bright spot in this economy, uh, this is one of those small areas that just takes a, it, it's a very small tweak. There's no rulemaking. It's just kind of giving a final blessing by the, by the White House um, and, and it would make a big difference on, on our ability to control costs. So I am, I am optimistic that we will get this over the next couple of months. Um, and it's been long overdue, but, I'm, but we've, we've been working very hard on that issue in particular, and I think we're going coming close to a resolution on it, to the positive.
0: That's great to hear. That's great to hear. And I know that's at the top of the mind of every HUD mortgagee in the country. And for our viewers that aren't familiar with, with what we're talking about with split wages, um, just a quick background. When you're doing a development deal, and you can jump in anytime too, Jim, um, you have these different wage decision buckets based on the type of work you're doing, whether it's, you know, four stories or five stories, or if you're doing horizontal work, site work, you could be classified as a kind of like a highway construction job. Um, and in the old days when the law was enacted, you know, a million dollars used to be a whole lot of money. Uh, nowadays, I mean, I don't know developers that are spending less than that, on horizontal site development, especially with all the amenities that folks want today. So the wages you have to pay on those commercial jobs are are a lot higher. And then you've got your residential wages on the other part of it. And then you've got two wage decisions on a single development. It becomes not only a paperwork nightmare, but it also becomes a lot more costly. So it's great to hear that you sound like we might be able to just kind of
1: yeah, really- is is my uh, my mother would say from from, uh, from my lips to God's ears, right? Where I do feel like it goes. But you, you raise a great point. I, I, there there's two there's two sides. It, it, it's it's rare that on a construction site now, you know, we're not talking about people making seven dollars an hour. We're, we're the, the construction industry because we're so we're 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 so low on on qualified and skilled workers. We're paying more money right now. We're paying a great wage. Great time to be a construction worker. The yep. other piece is, is you know, especially with our members, they really are small businesses. Uh, they are building those kind of four-story garden-style apartments, um, and the burdens that come along with Davis Bacon wage reporting departments are just too much. They don't have big HR shops, uh, or, or in big compliance shops. So, um, it, it really, it's just a smart government solution that that I'm 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 I'm, I'm very uh, very uh, very optimistic.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm, a bit, I'm, I'm in favor of, you know, um, underwriting and, and due diligence and a lot of the things that we do at HUD. I also like to, to point out that we are not funded. Uh, the loans are not funded by the government per se. They are insured by FHA. Exactly. And if all goes well, government never writes uh, yep. you know, a dime to the developer is funded by private equity who buy the instruments because they're they're viewed so, le- so low risk. A couple years back ago, I heard the Deputy Assistant Director of Multifamily and HUD talk about out of 11,000 mortgages, they had six that were 30 days past due. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah, clearly right. they're underwriting the heck out of them, but yep. we don't want them to cost more and we don't want them to be unfairly burdened. And, and, and in fact, I mean, if you could go to a developer that's smaller like you're talking about and say you could do this without having this extra cost or these split wages, I think that would be a big incentive for them Absolutely. to take advantage of that. So that's, that's great right. to yeah. Are there are, as we're wrapping up, are there any other hot button things that you, you want to tell us about things that are um, on your plate, whether it's opportunity zones or, or anything else that's kind of in the in the hot topic uh, arena yeah. of development uh, this year?
1: Well, obviously, opportunity zones. I think you know the COVID crisis has kind of you know pumped the brakes on those. So we're still we're we're still hopeful that opportunity zones will will, will really prove to be the boon for uh, for for development. Certainly, real estate development that, that when they were they were envisioned and enacted a couple of years ago. I, I you know the treasury is, is the treasury department has finally gotten all its rules out, uh, or at least most of them. Uh, so I, I hopefully investors will will start feeling more comfortable using them again. You know that COVID couldn't hit it at a worse time. I think we really would start seeing that program hit its stride. Uh, but we're, we're going to come out of this this crisis, and and, I, and the Opportunity Zone uh, law and program should be uh, should be a, a great way to help us uh, help us out of it. And, and then the only thing I would mention, uh, you know, we are we are working hammer and tong uh, over the next three weeks uh, to to work on the next coronavirus legislation. You can call it the Heroes Act if you're if you like the House bill. you can Call it. We can, the, uh, we can call it the CARES II Act if you're a Senate fan, uh, but we are working on uh, rental assistance. We're working on uh, making sure that we, we've got you know, people, like I mentioned, those, those workforce, that workforce housing are, are people working in restaurants and working in, 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 uh, in, in retail that are, that are still struggling to get back to work, that we can keep them in, 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 our, in an apartment or in a home uh, and provide a means, whether it's either direct, more direct government payments or, or making sure that unemployment insurance is, is, uh, is, is adequate. Uh, but there are a lot of issues. We're working on uh, Paycheck Protection Program loans to make sure that businesses that are still struggling have access to that, that good, cheap capital uh, to keep their, their doors open and their people employed. So there, there's a lot of moving parts uh, coming up. State and local money. Uh, we think it's really important for the federal government to help out state and local governments for the sheer reason that we don't want to see fees or taxes raised on housing right now this is the wrong time to do that if we can help state and local governments uh you know balance their books uh the federal government can help them balance their books and, and stave off any kind of uh, real estate increases or real estate fee increases that would be really important for us right now too so big negotiation coming up over the next three weeks and, and nhp will be right in the middle of it
0: yeah, that's great. I mean, there was a study by the Aspen Institute that I, I saw through the National Low Income Housing Coalition talking about potential evictions. Gosh, we hope we don't get to that. Right. right. But, you know, some very big numbers, very scary numbers of yes. 20 million potential. Right. If uh, Clearly, that's if something wasn't done about it. I'm, I'm hoping the CARES 2 Act does address that. I think they were asking for 110 billion or so in emergency rental assistance. But, you know, one thing I'll just throw out there to you is, you know, as somebody, again, who voted on stuff like this for the city of Aurora when I was a member, you know, emergency rental assistance only goes so far, right? I mean, at some point you've got to retrain people. If there's jobs that are lost in the retail sector, people have to find other work, other jobs. I mean, I'm a big fan of services and retraining the workforce so that we can keep those folks. that even if they're restaurant closed and they can't really get back into that, there's training. There's a way for them right. to get back into that, which I think goes along with what you're talking about with workforce housing.
1: Yeah, there's a lot. There's a, there's going to be some money in this for, for, for that exact purpose for job training. And one of the things that we're we're hopeful again, we were in a we have a deficit of, of qualified workers in the residential construction industry, and that that too is a part of the reason why why prices are home, or home houses are unaffordable, just because we can't get the workers on the job side. And again, time is money. So we're, we've been pushing for for job training money for the construction industry. That, that people who need jobs, there's a great paying job right down the block. Working for a home builder, uh, working for an apartment builder, that that they can make a good wage and and, and learn a great skill. So uh, we're we're hopeful that you know it kind of th- th- we have to throw everything against the wall in this crisis and and see what sticks and, and and we'll get through it.
0: That's great. That's really great to hear. It sounds like you're you got all the. The top things under consideration and 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 in the works. Um, I look forward to seeing, you know, some results. Hopefully, we'll see some stuff that, that really helps our industry, like you're advocating for this year. Um, and we're just grateful to have you on the episode. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on. You know, it's been exciting to to talk with you.
1: It's it's a it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, and I look forward to, uh, to to hopefully being invited back uh, in, in in the future and talk. Talk more about what we accomplished and, and what we're what we're looking for. Uh, what we're going to be pushing in the future sounds great. Great,
0: thank you, Jim Tobin. Everybody, thank you so much, Jim. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, boy, that was really incredible. A lot of great information from Jim Tobin at NEHB. We do look forward to having him back on a future episode talking about things that have happened in Congress this year. Uh, this has been an, our first edition, our very exciting edition of. NEHB Power Hitters, I'm your host, Michael Thomas, signing off.